Um, as you've been seeing, if you've been coming, we've had one of the elders preaching every Sunday, which is kind of a cool opportunity for you, for you guys to get to know us, and then also for us to be able to share God's word with you. So a few weeks ago, Sam, he shared um, that Jesus saves us from our sins. Last week, we had Dwayne preach. He um, was preaching and teaching about Jesus being Emmanuel, in other words, God with us. And today, I get the opportunity to share with you Jesus being our shepherd and really digging into who Jesus is as our Messiah and what it means for him to be our shepherd. The next week, Pastor Tom will be here and he's going to be preaching to you about the joy that Jesus brings and that Jesus gives us. So let's go ahead and pray. And then we're going to rewind in time about 700 years and go back to Micah 5. So please join me in prayer. Heavenly Father, we're so thankful for your word. We're so thankful that you gave us this word. We're so thankful that you gave us Jesus. And that's, that's what we're here about today, to learn and to talk about Jesus. And so we're thankful that you had such a humble birth, born in a feeding trough and then lived that perfect life, and then died in our place. So we're really grateful for that, Jesus. We're thankful for every single person here. May you be glorified, and may this service, may this message, everything today be all about you, Jesus. And we pray this in your name. Amen. All right, so Micah 5. This is, maybe some of you might be thinking, this is kind of an odd place to start a a Christmas message, Um, because this is about 700 years from the Christmas story. So way in the back. Um, And just to give you a little bit of context about what was going on here, this was not a good time for the nation Israel. Um, You've got Israel and it was divided into two kingdoms, the northern kingdom and then the southern kingdom called Judah. And um, both kingdoms were totally like sinking down into oblivion. The northern kingdom, Israel, was already been taken over by the Assyrian Empire. So totally not good. And then the southern kingdom of Judah, they were like kind of, I guess you would say, working their way into imploding. In other words, like exploding from the inside out because they had such evil and unfaithful leadership. And there soon would be, at the point of this message, this prophecy that Micah wrote, they were soon going to be coming under the judgment of God. So not, not a good place for either one of these places to be. But... In the midst of this, in the midst of oblivion, they get a message from the prophet Micah. And that's what we're going to look at for part of our message today. And we find that in Micah 5, a message from Micah that in all of this turmoil, here is a glimpse of hope of what is to come. So let's turn there. Micah 5, we're going to read verses 2 through 5. Micah says, this is a message, by the way, he's a prophet. So he gets a message from God, and then he's going to relay this to his people. He says, But you, O Bethlehem, Ephratath, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. Therefore, he shall give them up until the time when she who is in labor has given birth. Then the rest of his brothers shall return to the people of Israel, and he shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God, and they shall dwell secure for now. He shall be great to the ends of the earth, and he shall be their peace. 
This is fantastic news. News that a ruler is coming who they would have referred to as their Messiah. So their Messiah is coming, and it says that he is going to stand and shepherd his flock. But what does this mean? Who's the Messiah? And what does it mean for him to be their shepherd? Well, the Bible is packed with examples of shepherds, both good examples and bad examples. And God has a special place in his heart. He really values shepherds. Abraham was a shepherd. Moses, for part of his life, was a shepherd. David, another shepherd. So we see lots of examples of good shepherds. If you were to turn to Ezekiel 34, which we don't have time to go to today, but you could actually see some examples of bad shepherds as well. But overall, we have a, a clue here that God just really values shepherds. And he actually values shepherds so much that the first public announcement of the Messiah's birth went to shepherds. He didn't tell the religious leaders. He didn't tell the king. He told shepherds, people who weren't valued by their culture at all. He went to the everyday, average Joe kind of people with the message that we find in Luke 2. And this is part of the fulfillment of what we just talked about that was written 700 years prior. So let's take a look at this passage in Luke 2. And let's learn who this Messiah is coming from the message that was delivered by the angels to the shepherds out in the field. All right, so Luke 2. We're going to start in verse 8. And then we're just going to kind of unpack this verse by verse as we go. So let's read verse 8 of Luke 2. It says, and this, by the way, this is the Christmas story. So now we're fast forwarding seven years. This is referring to the time of Christmas that we're used to, the birth of our Savior. It says, and in the same region, there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. There's a lot of information about these shepherds, but a lot of it's just like, potential information. If you go to Google and like type in, you know, shepherds of the Christmas story, it's like you just get like a plethora of information. And though very interesting, I was like, well, is this really like true? Like there was a point where like one of these commentators was writing that like, oh, these shepherds would have been considered by their culture like equal to prostitutes. And I'm like, wow, like that's not what I expected. And and though that could be true, I want to stick to exactly what the Bible has to say about these shepherds. But there is a purpose to talking about them as being lowly because it ties in with the humility of the Christmas story. It ties in with Jesus being born in a manger, not in a kingdom. But let's see from the passages, from the scripture, from God's word, what we can definitely draw as a conclusion about the shepherds in the Christmas story. Well, by that verse that I just read, there were shepherds out in the field keeping watch over their flock by night, we can learn that these guys were laborers. They weren't temple leaders. They weren't teachers of the law. They were people out there working, working with their hands, getting their hands dirty, working. The next thing we can draw is that they were night shift workers. It says they were keeping watch over the flock by night. And typically, this would most likely mean that they were maybe a little bit lower on the seniority list. Most people, unless you're Zach, don't like the night shift. It's kind of a lot of people find it like to be like a stepping stone to get into working the days, which is like where you can actually work during daylight. Um, But these guys here, these shepherds, that's not who they were. They were keeping watch over the flock by night. 
And a little bit more, now this is some digging. This isn't directly related to this passage. But if we look into the job duty of a shepherd, and then we compare that back into the Old Testament, which is where we're going to go, we can see that their job duty alone, so the job of being a shepherd, it would have actually made them ceremonially unclean under the Jewish law. And an unclean person, they could not bring offerings before the Lord, nor could they participate in the Jewish festivals. But rather than just say that, I want to take you there and I want to show you um, what would have made them unclean. And so we go back to the law, the law of Moses that we find in Leviticus. Um, and the whole book of Leviticus is basically like a bunch of rules. This, you can't do this, you can do this. If you do this, it makes you unclean and so on and so forth. But in chapter 11 of Leviticus, we see the writer, which we anticipate is Moses, write about interactions between humans and animals. And they list all kinds of different animals. And we know that through the culture, there was unclean animals and there was clean animals. Um, And a shepherd would have been tending to sheep and to lambs. And they were actually considered to be clean animals. So it would make it sound like, oh, well, they're good to go because they're dealing with clean animals. But actually, in Leviticus 11.39, we see that that's not necessarily the case. So Leviticus 11.39 says, And if any animal in which you may eat dies, so that's talking about a clean animal, whoever touches its carcass shall be unclean until the evening, and whoever eats of its carcass shall wash his clothes and be unclean until the evening, and whoever carries the carcass shall wash his clothes and be unclean until the evening. I don't think it's too big of a stretch to view if you're a shepherd and you're watching over a whole flock stuff happens i mean 100 200 sheep out in a field anything could happen wolves come sheep get sick so there's a good high likelihood that at some point a shepherd's going to have to tend to a dead or dying sheep and then potentially carry them off and dispose of them properly that process alone would have made them unclean but that might not happen every day However, if we go up a little bit into verse 23 of Leviticus 11, we start to see some other things that would have potentially made them unclean, and it has to do with insects. So right before this, in 22, this is kind of unique, um, the writer Moses writes of the kind of insects that are actually okay, like literally says, like the ones you can eat, which sounds a little weird. But um, after that, so he says, like, these are the ones, so like, by the way, crickets and grasshoppers, the Bible says, go ahead and eat them. Maybe not quite so. But after that, it gets into verse 23. And in verse 23, it says, but all other winged insects that have four feet are detestable to you. And by these, you shall become unclean. Whoever touches their carcass shall be unclean until the evening, and whoever carries any part of their carcass shall wash his clothes and be unclean until the evening. Well, I've been outside, outdoors. I like to be outdoors. And I know that when you're outside, especially on a hot day, remember these shepherds are like in the the desert kind of area. I mean, what do we encounter? We encounter bugs, flies, mosquitoes. So I'm picturing like a shepherd out there, and this mosquito, you know, lands on their arm. And what do you do? You do that and just touch the carcass of an insect, and that would thus make them unclean. So the point of this is just basically to say that based upon the duties that these shepherds had, and based upon the other things we looked at in Luke 2, these guys would have not been 
the high up in society kind of guys. They would have been by their culture looked down upon, looked down as being, you know, working in the night, looked down as being unclean. That's kind of the, the point of bringing all that up is culture would not have looked at these guys very highly. Yet, God does. God chose to send his angels to speak, not to rich kings, not to the teachers of the law, not to the Pharisees, not to the scribes. No, he sent them to lowly, unclean shepherds. He sent the angels on a remote hillside. So clearly, God has a heart for shepherds. So now, with a little bit of understanding of who the shepherds were, let's see how everything goes down with them and the interactions they have with the angels. This is kind of like when you, when you picture the nativity scene in people's yards, or maybe you've got one setting up in your house. You know, you've got the, the Mary and Joseph and baby Jesus, and then you've got the shepherds. Well, let's talk about how the shepherds got to the nativity scene, or they got to the stable where Jesus was born. And this picks up right after verse 8 and right into verse 9 now of chapter 2 of Luke. So in, chap- in uh, verse 9, excuse me, verse 9, we see, And an angel of the Lord appeared to them. So appeared to these shepherds, these night shift shepherds, out in the field, working with their hands. The angel appears to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them. And they were filled with fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy. That will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly hosts praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those whom he is well pleased. So it starts with one angel, with the glory of the Lord shining around them. I'm picturing like bright light. It says shone, so shining bright light. This angel out there appearing to these shepherds in the field, and the angel says, hey, I've got great news. This day, today, a Savior who is the Christ. And by the way, Christ, that's the Greek word because the New Testament's written in Greek, but Christ is the same word in Hebrew as Messiah. So these shepherds would have known about the Messiah. So this is the proclamation from the angels that's saying, hey, your Savior, the Messiah, today is born. It's probably the best news they've ever heard in their lives. And then it essentially, in my opinion, becomes a party because it says suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of them. So a bunch of angels come down and it says they're praising God. So I'm picturing the shepherds and all these angels worshiping and praising God. So let's continue on now. Let's see what happens next. Verse 15. It says, When the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let's go to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. And they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. And when they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told them concerning this child. And all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. But Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. And the shepherds returned, 
glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen as it had been told to them. So after the angels leave, the party's over. I'm picturing these shepherds looking around at each other and essentially saying, yes, dude, let's go. And they go, and they don't just go, it says they go with haste. So they've got their giddy up on, and what do they find when they get there to Bethlehem? They find everything just as the angel had said. The shepherds saw and they praised. There's the baby lying in a manger just like they saw. And they worship. They worship baby Jesus, their Messiah. Baby Jesus is the Messiah, the one prophesied about back in Micah 5, 700 years prior. That's amazing news. And just, just this is kind of a side note, but something just to kind of wrap your heads around when you think about it. The shepherds were there worshiping their shepherd. Just kind of think about that for a minute. The shepherds were worshiping. They're viewing for the first time their shepherd as a little baby. It's kind of something, a little side note to think about. So now we know who the Messiah is. It's Jesus. But how did God fulfill more of that prophecy? Because he says back in Micah 5 that he, the Messiah, shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord. So we, we've established the Messiah now, but what does it mean for that Messiah, for Jesus, to shepherd his flock, to be a shepherd? Well, we're actually going to move the other direction now in the Bible. So we were prior to the Christmas story, then we went to the Christmas story. Now we're going to go about 30 years-ish forward into the actual life of Jesus. When Jesus was an adult doing his, his ministry here on earth, and if we look in John 10, we have Jesus' teaching. So the Messiah's teaching, like him himself teaching, and this is like cut and dries, plain as day. Jesus calls himself the good shepherd and says, I am the good shepherd. So in chapter 10 of John, this like the first 20 some verses here, it's Jesus time and time again explaining what makes him the fulfillment of this prophecy, what makes him the good shepherd. So we're not going to dig through every last one for the sake of time, but we're going to start in verse 7 and we're going to pull four things out of here that teach us what makes Jesus the good shepherd. So we're in John 10. Let's look at verse 7. Nine. It says, Jesus again said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. All who came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not listen to them. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. So, one thing that makes Jesus the good shepherd is he provides. In here, we see in these two verses that he provides a way. He says, I am the door. In other words, he says, I am the way into God's kingdom, into eternity. We know from John 14, 6, Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And in here, in you know, a few verses before, there are a few chapters before, he's saying, I'm the door. I am the door. But there's more we can pull out of just these two verses. And it's towards the end of verse 9 where he talks about how he provides pasture. 
Think of an animal. Think of an animal out to pasture. So when, when we send an animal out, and I'm not a farmer, by the way, so I, I could you know, butcher this a little bit. But when I, when I think of an animal going out to pasture, they're going out there to get their physical needs met. met. They're finding food, they're finding water, and they're just going in and out. And so when I think of an animal out to pasture, generally I would think of a pretty happy animal. Their needs are being fulfilled, they're being met. And Jesus says that, I am the door, and if anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. Jesus provides for our physical needs. That's one thing, or two things, the fact that he provides a way to eternity, and he also provides a way for our needs to get met. Those are two ways in which he provides, making him the good shepherd. Let's look at verse 10 now. Jesus says, The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. Jesus, as a good shepherd, he gives life. But he doesn't just give any old life. He gives abundant life. The word abundant in Greek is parishion, meaning exceedingly, very high, beyond measure, a quality so abundant as to be considerably more than one would ever expect or anticipate. That's what Jesus is talking about here when he says he gives abundant life. So in short, Jesus is promising us life far better than we could ever imagine. But I think that means two things. I think that means here and now life, but I think that also means an eternal life. Because when we profess faith and we put our faith in the saving work of Jesus, eternal life starts right then and there. It doesn't start when we die. We have an eternity starting the moment we get saved with a relationship with Christ. So we all know John 3.16. It says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. So through believing in Jesus, we have eternal life. Jesus gives life abundantly. But what about the here and now? I don't think that we would just say, oh yeah, Jesus provides and gives us life, but it starts the moment we die. No, it starts the moment we profess faith in Jesus. And what about this abundant life for the here and now? Well, Jesus makes a promise to us right before he ascends into heaven. He's there with some of his disciples. And he says, listen, I'm not going to leave you guys as orphans. I'm going to send you the helper. And who he's referring to is the Holy Spirit. He says, I am going to send you one who is going to be your helper. This is, while, they, while the disciples are here on, while they were here on earth, they're not dead yet. They're alive. He says, I'm sending you someone who's going to help you. And it's the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of truth. I'm not abandoning you as orphans. So what is the role of the Holy Spirit? How is this Holy Spirit giving us abundant life? Well, there's plenty of places that you could go to to find examples of the Holy Spirit giving us abundant life in the here and now. But there's one that I want to go to, and we find it in Romans 8. And I think the reason I'm going here is because some of us might be listening to me right now and being like, listen, Ray, life is not abundant. Maybe we're full of stress. Maybe there's pain in life right now. Maybe it's hard to see life being abundant right now. Maybe that's where you're at, and that's okay. But I want to give you some hope straight from the Bible, straight from Romans. This is written by the Apostle Paul. 
And this is where we see that Holy Spirit being our helper. So in Romans 8, 26, the Apostle Paul writes, Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. For we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. This means that when we are in our uttermost weakness, when we're as low as we can go, when we don't even have the words to pray, don't even like, maybe you've been there. We're like, you're there and like, don't even have the words. Don't know what to say. That's okay. We don't have to because we see in this passage, it says the spirit himself intercedes for us. So we're here, God's there. It's like the spirit coming in between and saying the words for us. That is, to me, is an example of how the Spirit gives us abundant life. That is abundant life. It gives us security. It gives us confidence. It gives us peace. These are all key ingredients to what abundant life is. It isn't about health, wealth, and prosperity, as sometimes we want to think it is. It's about having a peace in our hearts that is indescribable and knowing no matter what, God will take care of us. Jesus promised us this. He is the good shepherd. When he says, I will give life and give it abundantly, that's what it means. I'm sure there's a lot more to it that you could dig into, but that's where we're going to camp out for now. All right, let's continue on though. That's the second reason of the second thing that Jesus, that makes him the good shepherd, but we got a couple more to look at. In John 10, let's go back there. Let's look at verse 11 through 13. Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He was a hired hand and not a shepherd who does not own the sheep, sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees. And the wolf snatches them up and scatters them. He flees because he is a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. Jesus stands in our place He protects us. Jesus as the good shepherd. And then it says he sacrificed himself for us. It says the good shepherd lays down his life for his sheep. It's Christmas right now, and I know that's not really what we're thinking about, but if you fast forward a couple months, we celebrate Easter. That's what Easter is all about. What Jesus accomplished on the cross Jesus on the cross sacrificed himself. That's an example of him being our shepherd. He laid down his life for his sheep. That's us. It talks about how the the bad shepherds here, how they flee when the wolf comes. Guess what? Jesus, he didn't flee when it was time for his crucifixion. When it came time for him to be lifted up on that cross, he could have done absolutely anything to get off that cross. Just take a minute. We're talking Jesus here. We're talking the God of the earth, the one who created everything, the one who sent these angels to the shepherds. I mean, this is kind of, I mean, you could use your wildest imagination and whatever you come up with, Jesus could have done it. I mean, lightning bolts, you name it. It it could have happened, but he didn't. He did not. He is the good shepherd. He sacrificed himself He laid down his life for his sheep and he endured that cross and died. That is a good shepherd. The fourth thing I want to look at that makes him a good shepherd, this is a really encouraging one. In verse 14, 
Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me. Jesus knows us. A shepherd knows his sheep. Jesus knows us. This is encouraging. We're not a dot on a map, like a map of people that Jesus looks down from in heaven and just says, oh yeah, there's, there's some people over there. No, that's not, that's not what Jesus does. He knows his own, it says, and his own know him. And this is even more encouraging because he makes himself available. When it says that he makes himself to be known for us, that means he's available for us. He's not a distant savior. He's not a distant shepherd. But as we learned from Duane last week, he is Emmanuel. He is God with us. Now, I realize that sometimes this is hard to see in the moment. It's hard to just, you know, just like that look and say, oh yeah, there, there's God with me right now. That, that's, that's tough to see. I, I realize that. But I want to encourage you to take a look back in your life. This is what I find. It, this for, like, for me, when I do this, it's like, oh, yeah, I can see God's work. And I want to encourage you guys to just take some time at some point and just look back throughout your life and see all that Jesus has done for you. Look at those times when you look at a situation, you look at a scenario, whatever it might be, when the only conclusion that you can come up with regarding that situation is, yep, that was God. I want to encourage you to look for those things, and I got a feeling we can all find that in our lives. All right, so let's wrap this up. Let's bring this all together. So what makes Jesus the fulfillment of Micah 5? We know that he, as was proclaimed to the shepherds, was the Messiah. You know that that's, he is the ruler. And then what makes him a shepherd, as we looked at just now in John 10, is that he provides for us. He gives abundant life. He sacrificed his life for us, laid his life down for us, and that he intimately knows us. And I want to encourage you, there's more in John 10 to look at. There's way more things that make him the good shepherd. And this is the person whose birth we are celebrating right now during the Christmas season. Jesus, the Messiah, the little baby born in a feeding trough, is the ultimate shepherd. It was all perfectly planned from the beginning. So what does this lead us to? I think it leads us to joy. Absolute joy. And a little uh, spoiler alert, that's exactly what Tom is going to be wrapping up our Advent series with next week. Please pray with me. Heavenly Father, We are so thankful that you sent Jesus. We're so thankful for Jesus having such a humble, lowly birth, coming, being born in a a barn, in a feeding trough. Just that example of humility. We're so thankful for that, God. Thank you for sending Jesus. I pray now that as we worship you, that our hearts will just be drawn to you, the shepherd, the giver of life. Help us just to reflect on who you are as our shepherd. And I pray that our hearts will just be drawn to worship you. We thank you for who you are. We thank you for coming to this earth. And we're thankful ultimately that you died and laid down your life for us in our place. We pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen.